Hey, listen, let's turn our Bibles, you guys. Romans chapter 13. Going through the great book of Romans. Hey, the title of the message is Christians, Politics, and Government. Right? And a little subtitle, A Christian's Responsibility in Government. I mean, this is what the text is addressing. That's why we have the title that we do. Romans chapter 13. You know, I heard a story about a little boy. He loved the family clock in the living room because on the hour it would chime. And particularly when it got to 12. So it's like it would chime 12 times and he was mesmerized by it. And he would count the times, you know, six, seven, eight. One time there was a malfunction in the clock and it went past 12. He's like, 13, 14, 15. He ran to his mother and says, Mom, Mom, it's later than it's ever been, he said, right? Well, it is later than it's ever been. That's good news. But it also tells us that there's unique challenges that we face. God has us providentially at the time in which we live here. It's an exciting time to live. There's lots of opportunity. But we've said it a thousand times, COVID actually brought to the forefront many things. One of the things that COVID did is that it revealed that there are legitimate threats that exist. I mean, how many of you remember BLM, right? I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but BLM. You know, Black Lives Matter. Of course, Black Lives Matter. But, you know, this was just a Trojan horse for Marxism. You guys remember this, right? We went through it. And then you have destruction of cities. You know, in Los Angeles, when there's all this vandalism, 90% of the... Uh, the buildings that were vandalized were owned by Jews. And it was almost like this mass formation psychosis during this time, this social contagion overcoming society. I mean, I knew a sportscaster up in Sacramento, a wonderful man. I mean, he wasn't quite sure how to take this whole BLM thing, you know? And he said, well, he just said on air, well, every life matters. And it's like every life does matter. Can I hear an amen to that, right? He was fired, right? I mean, this was happening during that. Do you remember that you could not go to a hospital and visit a loved one, even though they were dying unless you were injected with a substance not approved by the FDA? Do you remember, you know, the lockdowns in California? Yet the strip clubs, marijuana dispensaries, they remained open. What about the travel restrictions? How about our local health administrator in San Diego fining churches and putting pressure on churches, you know, not to sing? Do you guys remember this stuff? I mean, it almost seems like years ago, but it wasn't. And I remember there was a police officer that showed up on a Sunday morning here. We've never had a police officer show up on a Sunday morning called because we were gathering. And I called him and I said, hey, listen, I just want you to know, I mean, that we love the police. And this whole idea of defunding the police is absolutely crazy. We love the blue. There's no doubt about it. And I'm talking about you. And I say, listen, my mom taught me to wave to the police officers and stuff. So I love you guys. And I want you to know you're welcome and I can ever help you and pray for you and stuff like that. But listen, don't ever show up at our church being called by someone as, as if gathering in the name of Jesus according to our constitutional rights is against the law. No, listen, do not do that. And you got to tell your lieutenant, we do not want that here. I do not. I'm going to kindly tell you that if you do that, I will gently escort you off our property. I mean, I'm just telling you. It's like, 
Here's the thing about it. I think the young man, and there's like everybody's young to me these days. I mean, this guy's like, it's like I'm talking to a 16-year-old, but I'm talking, of course, to a, a man. And I tell respect him, but he had no idea. I'm not even so sure he understood the Constitution. There was just like this crazy, as I meant, social contagion. I mention these things. Here's why. Because the last few years have raised the question about what is the role of government? That's why. And that's a great question to ask, an important one. It's a biblical one. That's what Paul is addressing at this time. What does it look like to be a faithful citizen in America? What does it look like to live out your faith as a Christian in America? Is there ever a time when a Christian refuses to submit to the governing authorities? Look, here's the thing. The reason I'm mentioning all of that is to give context to Romans 13 because what Paul is doing at this time is he's speaking to a first century audience, particularly Jewish followers of Yeshua, Jesus, as well as non-Jews who are following Jesus, the King. And what he's identifying is the role of government and the role of the citizen in government. It's a very very important. But I got to tell you, this is a passage, if you don't get it right, particularly study in its context, like any form of communication, you need to know context, right? There's no context, there's no clarity. Okay, you got to study this in its context, and in partic- not only in its immediate context, but the context of the Bible as all. Well. If you don't get it right, it sets you in a trajectory never intended by the author. I mean, you read, for example, look at verse 1. You read verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. If you stop right there without reading the rest, it would almost be like, um, is, is government God? I mean, like, okay, well, all authority comes from God. God gives authority to government. Well, then, like, um, does that mean that Anything, you know, it's like whatever government says you must align with because it almost seems like, is that what it's saying here? It almost reminds me of James chapter 1 when it says, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. If you stop right there, you get a wrong view of actually what it is to live out your faith as a Christian as if actually you're to feel good about adversity or somehow, I don't know, just, you know, just suck it up a little bit emotionally. Your friend's child has leukemia, but in some way consider it joy. That's not what it's saying at all. No, it's actually just saying, you know, the, the joy is, is that God is faithful to his promises. It's a test of your faith. Faith is an almighty God. God never fails. So the joy that we can have is amidst adversity is God always shows up and he's faithful. That's the joy. But if you don't read, study this, I'm serious, in its context, you're going to find yourself in weeds never intended. Here's the context. The context is Israel was a conquered nation under the fist of the Roman Empire. And it had a long history of Jews rising up in insurrection. In fact, some believe Judas Iscariot of course, betrayed Jesus, comes from a line of insurrectionists. And more recently at the time this was written, 
the political situation in Rome was explosive. The Emperor Claudius, who reigned 13 years from 41 to 54 AD, he had expelled a lot of Jews from Rome over the issue of Christ, over the issue of the Anointed One, the Davidic King. I mean, if you go back to Romans chapter 1, just real quick, I mean, Paul, of course, is a Jew, right? And he's a follower of Jesus, but he takes on immediately the false system of the Roman Empire to esteem the emperor's God. I mean, there was the gospel of Caesar. Gospel means good news, the announcement of, of Caesar that he's king and you ought to respect him. And he actually confronts it and says, the true son of God is Jesus who resurrected from the dead. So actually, he is speaking to power. There's no doubt about it. But here's the question. The question is, is following Jesus a revolution? Is it a political revolution that is call, calling for insurrection against the insanity and the idolatry of the Roman Empire? And Paul would say, no, no. It's a movement that transforms people from the inside out, but it's not a political revolution. It's like, Pete, put away your sword. And so therefore, he's saying, you guys, pay your taxes. Because the idea, actually, a couple ideas, but one is, is that in times past in the empire, you had Jews attempting to protest and insurrect against the Roman Empire, and they refused to pay taxes. I mean, I could understand their sentiment. But Paul would be saying, you know, the thing about the Roman Empire, I'm going to paraphrase that is, is that the Roman Empire has constructed these incredible roads all throughout the empire that we are taking advantage to get the gospel out. It's like Rome provided the internet for us. And said, we're getting the gospel through these roads. And if you're going to be traveling the Roman roads throughout the empire, you're going to face the issue of taxes. So we're going to read this in a little bit. Pay your taxes. It's like, I know you got a lot of concern about the emperor and the empire and stuff, but pay your taxes. Pray that there be peace to make the gospel known, which brings transformation to human beings. Can I hear a big amen to that? That's part of the background. And for... Jesus to say the following, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to the Lord that which is the Lord's. In one statement, the Lord recognized the validity of human government, but at the same time, he recognized there were limits too. Like Caesar, well, if you look at a coin, there's Caesar's, you know, image. Yeah, but on every human soul is God's image. And God created us. So yeah, like respect the government, but respect and obey God first. And that's the first point that's in your notes. We're to give to Caesar that which is Caesar's God, that which is God, and God always comes first. So when it comes to your responsibility to the government, in verse 1, when it says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, well, why? But why should we respect governing authorities. Augustine said that government is a necessary evil, that it is necessary because of evil. So God ordained government to provide a framework for social and political order. Look up here for a second. So this idea, and I don't know how it's translated. You may have another translation. It, the best translation here is soul. Let every soul. It, uh, some, some translations are let everyone or let man be subject to the governing authorities, but actually the Greek word is suke. 
So man is not a bio-machine. We're not a byproduct of mindless nature. You have a soul. You've been created in the image of God. We can experience emotion. We make choices. We have creative power. It's like, and, and that, that is absolutely essential. The, the idea is, like every human being created in the image of God, government must recognize that. that in other words, it's like the few or the elite controlling the masses. Wait a second. God did not make us to be under totalitarianism and the power of the few. We, we are souls created in the image of God. Our nation was inspired. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago by the revelation of God in the formation of Israel. That's just a flat-out fact because in the calling of the nation of Israel, in the creation of the nation of Israel, you have God calling Abraham, going to make you a nation, not an empire. And then when the Israel is in slavery there in Egypt, it's like, raises up Moses, let my people, what? Go. You are going after the kids. You are like trying to murder male babies. In addition to that, you are restricting their worship. God's not into it. He calls, you better let him go. The door out is Passover. 1,300 years later, Jesus is on the cross the very same day, providing the exodus out of the enslavement of sin. But he brings them ultimately in Sinai, of course, and gives them law, righteous boundaries. So it's like in the formation of the nation of Israel, you not only have the basis for personal freedom, which is like, like how do, can I be really free? Get rightly aligned with God, man. Because if you're rightly aligned with God, you'll be really free. You won't be under the tyranny of sin or bitterness or hatred or lust. You'll be real free to live your full potential. And then the basis of political freedom. The political freedom is, hey, the value of the individual, free speech, freedom to worship. This is what inspired our founding fathers. This is what inspired the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men created equal, they are endowed by their, can someone tell me, creator with certain unalienable rights, and among them, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And I, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but that's why John Adams said, you know, I will insist that the Hebrews have contributed more to civilized men than any other nation. If I were an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument to civilizing the nations. They are the most glorious nation that ever inhabited the earth. The Romans and their empire were but a bubble in comparison to the Jews. So it's like, look, has God ordained government? Of course, for social, political structure. Should it be respected? Of course. And if we continue to read, let's Draw this out the more because he goes on to say, no authority except from God. Authorities that exist are appointed by God. And but let me just pause here real quick. And do you know the Bible tells us that the nations, well, look, every government, every government is actually responsible, or I should say accountable to God. God relegates authority to government. It doesn't mean that government is off the hook to be accountable to Almighty God. Are you guys with me on this? Do you know Jesus, when he returns, will judge the nations? 
Okay, so let's just continue. So whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Rulers, this is key, are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? What, what is, do what is good, and, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, which actually speaks of capital punishment. The implication is, is that, let me just say, that the Jesus movement is not a political revolution. You pick up the sword. So this is not like we don't, we follow Jesus, not Barabbas. It's like, like this is saying, like God has given authority to the government to ensure social justice, to value the individual. So it's like you're going around murdering people in the name of God or something. You're going you're to face wrath and you're going to face judgment. So he is a God's minister for you to do good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And the point number two is that God purposed and ordained government to protect the good and punish evil, okay? That doesn't mean, however, that every government has God's approval because not every government protects the good and punishes evil. If this distinction is not made, it makes government God. And that's not what he's saying, right? So that would mean, like, if I just, if, if government is ordained by God, which it is, for what purpose? To protect the good, punish the evil, right? And we're going to get to it in a little bit. Are there any conditions that the Bible identifies that we should resist the authorities of government? We're going to talk about it just a little bit. Yes, actually. I mean, listen, it's possible that a government actually promotes evil, right? Doesn't protect the good, promotes evil. Like, look, God not only ordained government. Let's think about marriage for a second. So the thing is, is that this beautiful covenant institution of marriage, husbands are to love their wives even as Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It's a beautiful thing. I remember Chuck Smith looking at me. I can still see his eyes right now in my mind's eye. I'm not kidding you. And he looked at me as, as he was marrying Stephanie and I, and he said, Greg, you're to love Stephanie Nothing short than how Jesus Christ loved you. And I'm like, oy vey. No, just kidding. Um, whoa. And I feel, yeah, yeah, man. I'm going to do that. Woo. Life is how we need the Lord's self. That's for sure, right? But listen, here's the thing is that you can have a husband that's not loving his wife, but is actually threatening his wife physically and verbally. Now, if that's the case, the wife is not to respect the husband. In fact, let me just say, it's an unpleasant subject to address, but if there's any wife who is being physically abused or physically threatened, you should call the police, okay? You're not to be under such authority. The similar principle, when you have government who's promoting evil, we, we are not required to bow to it. Are you with me on that? That is very important distinction. So it raises the question, is there a time when one 
refuses to obey the governing authorities. And this is where we're getting to some notes. So if you have home fellowships and things, you're a part of it, you want to jot these things down because this is a part of your discussion. But look, there's two main reasons why Christians must resist the government. Number one, when government commands you to go against God's commands. I mean, in exile, there was a time all required to bow to the king and the state. This is Daniel chapter 3. This is the story of the Hebrew boys, these young godly men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're saying, hey, you know, like you got to bow to the state, you got to bow to the king as God. And they're like, no. But if you don't do it, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And here's what they said. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So it's like, hey, if government is calling for chief allegiance in one's life, no, our chief allegiance is to Almighty God. And this is the pattern you see in the New Testament. It was Peter who exclaimed we ought to obey God rather than men. The local government was calling them not to preach in Jesus' name. They were restricting freedom of worship. They were restricting freedom of speech. No way. We obey God, not Man In the context of the Roman Empire, please understand. I mean, our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago were faced with the decision, are you going to give allegiance to the emperor and burn incense and profess the emperor's God, or are you going to retain what is true, and that is confess Jesus is Lord? And thousands and thousands of our fellow brothers and sisters refused to bow to the emperor. One instance... You're talking 50 years after the Apostle John's death. The pastor, our brother, the church in Smyrna, Polycarp, was murdered for his faith. It was 153 AD. The satanic frenzy broke out in the Olympia sporting event with the crowd chanting, death to infidels, death to Polycarp. They dragged our brother, 85 years of age, into the arena. Oh, Lord. And uh, one of the soldiers said, just play the, play the man, you know, just, just confess that Caesar is Lord. And he said, man, you tempt me with a fire that's going to burn for a few minutes. You're subject to a fire that will burn for eternity. He says, no way. No way. The other reason is when government commands you to do something that God forbids. And this was what Bonhoeffer was facing. He watched the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany. He watched his nation hijacked by a demoniac named Hitler who set his sights to the destruction of God's chosen people. thing is, is Bonhoeffer saw this early on. We're going to get to that in just a little. He saw, he saw this DNA that would morph into such evil early, and he tried to nip it in the bud. And he called his fellow pastors to rise up and to be a voice. And many did, many did not. But he made the distinction there's a difference between murder and justified killing, which is clearly biblical. We are not to take innocent life. Is there such, such a thing as justified killing? How about self-defense? How about war? How, how about, well, when he thought of Hitler, 
Hitler was a law unto himself at this time. He was like a stinking emperor. He embodied evil. He was going after Jews. He could not remain silent, so he participated in a strategy to have Hitler put to death. He participated, like, I'm going to stand against this evil. I can't just sit back and do nothing. So the question is, is like, hey, what does it look like to be a faithful citizen if you were living 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire? Because that's what he's addressing. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. The Jesus movement is not a political revolution that it calls for the sword. And that's why you have passages like 1 Peter 2, 1 Timothy 2, I exhort you that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for there is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. What does it look like to be a faithful citizen today? I mean, what is our relationship with government? Um, we live in a constitutional republic. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Boy, that, he just nailed it right there. And it's a covenant, actually, with one another. We must participate. We, the people, our voices matter. Pay your taxes. Be lawful. Speak the truth. Vote your values. If politics refers to the way that countries are governed, and to the ways that governments make rules and laws to manage human society properly, listen, then Christians better be in politics. I just gave the definition of politics. The definition is countries governed into the ways that governments make rules and laws to manage the human society properly. It's like... That's super important, needless to say, right? In fact, let me just say this. To be an American, you see, we, we live in a country that every voice matters, votes matter. We have representative government. I mean, it, it's just, I'm just saying, in essence, we are political. That's just the reality. It's interesting to me. It's like, hey, you know, we got to bring truth to culture. Yeah, but we live in a culture of politics. So you should bring truth to our culture. Here, here's where I think there's a hiccup. Bear with me. And that is that there's a difference between the technical meaning of politics versus how the term is used in American discourse. Politics, and this is how I feel personally. I'm not saying you have to feel this way, but I think politics is, is the, what it's referring to is, is often something very kind of dirty, to be frank with you. It, it's a reference to, I'm not saying this is the technical meaning. It's a technical means beautiful. But... The way it's referred, like, I'm just not political, I just don't do politics, because the American discourse when it comes to politics, to me, is like the ultimate ends justify the means. I'm going to do anything and everything to dehumanize and demonize my opponent. And it's like, man, that gets so dirty. I was just listening to a political speech yesterday by a prominent leader. And I was just thinking, I just get so sick of listening to this guy dehumanize and demonize human beings. I just like, so it's like, but bear with me. 
It's like, politics, does it matter? Of course it does. We live in a constitutional republic. We, the people, we elect our leaders. They represent us. They are sworn to uphold the Constitution. It would be crazy not to responsibly participate. It's actually critical that we do. We all have responsibility to do it. It's like a covenant. I mean, God created a covenant with Israel. We, it's like we, our Constitution is a covenant with the people of America. We must participate. Law matters. Ideas matter. Can I hear an amen to that? Here's, here's, a, few re- here's a few reasons why it's a little confusing. Sorry. Did you guys want to clap on that point? I mean, it's like, my mom is watching. You should do it. No, just kidding. So, look, here's a, here's a reason why it's a little confusing. And if you're in your home groups, you've got to write this down. You've got okay, you to talk about it. Number one is the idea that being chosen by God, because Christians are chosen. Of course, the salvation is initiated by God. Chosen speaks of security. doesn't mean we don't have a choice. But the idea is that we're chosen doesn't mean that then we have this trophy that we are just to sit back and admire. The reality is we are saved by grace, not of our works. But Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 10 says we are saved for works, for good works. Can I hear an amen to that? So it's like, wait, chosen? Yeah, but it's not like I get the trophy, go home and relish I'm chosen. That's it. I know I'm saved by grace, but... And that's, and that's through faith, not of myself. It's not of works, not a performance treadmill. It's what Jesus accomplished for me. So, but I have to realize that God has me on planet Earth to embody righteousness and be salt and light. And number two, while faith is essential to the believer, this is another, just got to work through this. In many instances, it's reduced merely to an intellectualist sense. That's why, like, if Eric Metaxas was here, he'd say, like, you know, a lot of times you're thinking of faith. It's like, go on our website, look up what we believe, and that's it. But faith without works is dead. And that's James 2, 19 through 22, where the half-brother of Jesus actually, in that context, says, you know, Satan even believes in God. So I'm just saying, like, genuine worship results in godly works. So that's important. Number three, the idea that politics, you know, we're talking about government. Just think governments. Government's very important. Government, ideas, legislation, law. The idea that politics is off limits to Christians is actually just silly. Nowhere in the Bible do you have genuine worshipers of God who do not embody their faith and conviction in the public square. Nowhere. I mean, nowhere in the Bible do you see a man or a woman of God in a place of power failing to speak to power the righteousness of God. I mean, just the reality is, is like, if there's a God and there's a God and we worship and we do worship and Jesus is the king, it's like, that's to affect every area of our life, right? It's all of a sudden, if you just go like, I don't know, if you're a representative, you know, a congressman, a senator, all of a sudden, what? You don't bring your convictions in your worldview, in your work? Are you, that just makes zero sense. And I'm telling you, in the scriptures, if it's Daniel, Nehemiah, Joseph, Moses, Paul, Nicodemus even, they're in spheres of influence and leadership speaking to power, being responsible. When we see elected officials 
who confess to be Christians or even a Roman Catholic but are the loudest proponents for abortion. Listen, seriously, that's sacrilege. That's impiety. That's blasphemy. It is. And why do I mention it? Because don't get used to it. Do not allow it to somehow undermine, seriously, living out your faith as if you... If politicians step into government, they leave their faith at the door. That's never been the case. That just doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. We're not China, man, where you compartmentalize conviction and worldview to a building. And four, there's confusion regarding a Christian's view with regard to the law. I was just listening to my friend who's a, one of the most prominent rabbis in the world. But he, but he categorized Christians. Well, Christians, you know, Jew, Jews are into the law. Christians, not so much. I thought, you know, it's not accurate. The reality is, is no one gets into heaven without a legal transaction. We must be justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The confusion is, please hear me, I'm not under the punishment of the law. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died in my place. He became sin... For us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Can I hear a big amen to that? So it's a beautiful thing. So watch this. But listen, law simply means righteous boundaries, original design. We actually underscore. In fact, please hear this. And I was with the Consul General of Israel just a, a, a Thursday and opened my message with Isaiah 2. Because out of Jerusalem in the latter days, during the reign of Jesus, the law goes forth. The Torah, now that's basically the first five books, I mean, the, which begin with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, made male and female to make three, and so forth. I mean, righteous standards of God on planet earth. In the USA, can you have laws enacted that are unconstitutional, therefore threaten freedom and tyrannize life? Yes. Should, should, should civilians, citizens, I should... Speak out against it? Yes. Listen, here's the reality. Roe versus Wade was unconstitutional. It, it was overturned. And it was overturned because people spoke out against it. You know, I was listening to an interview with Benjamin Netanyahu, and his dad was an extraordinary historian. Benjamin, of course, is prime minister of Israel. And he was asked the question, what did you learn from your dad? I'm going to quote him. He said, the first condition for a living organism is to recognize danger in time. So here's this brilliant historian understanding the past history of mankind. Bibi, the first responsibility of a living organism, recognize danger in time. You better. A living organism, you ever heard it said that way? That's interesting. Must recognize, you know, a danger in time. That's very important. You know, if, if Bonhoeffer was here, he would say the church is the conscience of the state. And, and it's like Christians have unique discernment through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Today in our state, you have a senator by the name of Scott Weiner. So he's spearheading laws that will allow the state to remove children from their home on a track for medications that will sterilize them, make them sexually impotent in every way, 
and prepare them for surgical procedures that will mutilate their bodies. Now, if that's not demonic danger, I don't know what is. I mean, it's just like, what do we do? Well, I think of the German sociologist, political scientist, Elizabeth Newman. In 1970, she wrote about what happened in Germany. Because the thing was, is that you had so many people privately that just despised Hitler, but they didn't say anything. So she talked about, you know, the spiral of silence. And she essentially said, like, if you don't speak, it makes it more difficult to speak. So if you don't speak, it makes it more difficult to do speak, and it's like, and then it builds on itself cumulatively, and basically you can have, you know, these crazy ideas overcoming a culture and a nation. And Bonhoeffer, which is attributed to him, said that silence in the face of evil is evil itself. If you do not speak, you're not being neutral, but are contributing to the success of the thing you refuse to name and condemn. So it's like, hey, God made us speaking beings. We need to speak. Can I hear a big amen to that? And that's important for community, man. We're in it together. We, the people, speak, speak, speak. Number five, I think, just kind of, kind of addressing, I'm going to say, obstacles that I think undermine clear thinking, you know, with regard to believers in the context of our time. The Constitution of the United States of America requires freedom of speech and freedom of religion. So the objectives of living out our faith is not to make Christianity the government-supported religion of the USA. That's not our objective. In fact, we don't believe that. We don't believe a government should impose a religion on the people. We believe in free speech and freedom of religion. Can I hear a big amen to that? It's like, no, no, it's like, we're not, we don't, I can't, you can't impose righteousness in that re- regard and demand people bow. That, my point is, is that for us being active and responsible citizens and God using our voice, the objective is not, okay, what we're going to do is in somehow, some way, just like require that every single human being, be, you know, worships Jesus Christ. We're going to require it. We're going to require it by law. No, that's not the case. The objective is to honor God, ensure righteousness that exalts a nation rather than tear it down, and to make Jesus known who is the Savior of the world. 1933, Bonhoeffer wrote his essay, The Church and the Jewish Question, and he said, first, the church must be the conscience of the state. Second, Christian church must be responsible to help any victims of the state, which clearly was directed to helping Jews at the time, And thirdly, if the state refused to change course and do the right thing, which meant in context, you know, stop persecuting Jews, it was the solemn obligation of Christians not merely to protest, but to help the victims and become active politically. He said to, quote, shove a stick in the spokes of the wheel of the machine. I'm proud of Pastor Tim Thompson. I'm meeting with him Wednesday. Great pastor in Temecula. His church helped spearhead the turning over of two school boards in the area. Most recently, they made a decision not to allow crazy material in the schools and really got our governor's attention. Got his attention, and essentially, he was like, um, you know, he called them extremists. 
What about the republic? You know, I mean, don't we live in a republic? Of course we do. But it got his attention. Oh, my goodness gracious. Wow, you're banning some books. You just don't want this craziness, you know, you know in the schools and things. And, and, and he's basically threatened, we're going we're to send books. And, he's, you know, you're going try to try to usurp their authority. The idea of shoving sticks in the spokes, well, to be frank with you, it's biblical. And it's a responsibility that we all have. The good news is, and I'll just end with this, but never believe a preacher when he says he's going to end, okay? But I, I hope I'm really going to end this. So the good news is evil doesn't win. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, you guys, real quick. Isaiah 9. Hey, listen, I hope that you have been blessed this morning. I hope that that was refreshing and provided wisdom. Hey, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The third point is this. You talk about how incredible Jesus is. The one who carried the cross on his shoulder, our precious king, who hung blood, gave his life, bridged that gap between God and man, could be said with one hand, on the cross he reached up, took the hand of the Father. With the other he reaches out to every single human being who laid his life down, who resurrected from the dead, who came not to be served but to serve I mean, despised the circumstances over the joy set before him. He endured it. We could just go on and on and on. Please hear me. The king, the Davidic king, the one who bore the cross on his shoulders, one day will carry the government on his shoulders. And this is the prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Shalom, of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. Upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order and establish a judgment and justice from that time forth, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Just thank you for making us citizens of a kingdom that will never break down. And just, Lord, we think of the children. You know, we think of the children, what you said to Jonah. What about the kids? And I just pray that we might be used by you, our voices, our life, our modeling, our family, to help awaken a generation of harmful influences after the children. And uh, we pray, Lord, for San Marcos. You know, we think of school boards. We think of city council. I mean, that, the, the government matters. Local government matters. And we pray, Lord, you would raise up godly men and women to be in a place to filter ideas that are destructive, that desensitize, that break down, and instead promote what is good, what leads to edification and wholeness. But in the meantime, Lord, we know that your chief aim is after every human being to be a part of the kingdom, your kingdom, living it out now and with the assurance of being with you forever and ever. And Lord, we'll never forget your death on the cross. And thank you that you came to destroy evil. And one day that will be known on planet Earth. We'll see it. We'll see your reign. We believe it, Lord. Thank you. But I just want to pray, Lord, if there's anyone here 
that has yet to embrace you as their Savior and Lord, uh, to invite you to come into their life, to turn from their sin, to turn to you. Um, I pray that these next few moments that that would take place. I, look, I, just while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I want you to know the Lord loves you. That, that means he, He's after your highest good. And he actually hates anything that would be harmful to you. And, uh, and Jesus said, for God so loved the world. Such a beautiful thing. He loves the whole world, big, small, black, or white. He loves, loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him, believe that he's true, would not perish, but have everlasting life, would not break down. We see a lot of breakdown today. A lot of fear, a lot of depression, a lot of confusion. If you, if you believe in the Son, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. I mean, the life God intended to fill those empty spaces within. Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come unto me and I'll give you something to drink. You'll never thirst again. But he's talking about right relationship. That's deep down what we're really longing for is a relationship with the Father who loves us and created us. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except to be through me. So he's like, well, Greg, what do, what do I need to do? Man, it's critical that, that we all admit we're sinners. We've fallen short of God's law. We, we don't even keep our own standards, much less God's, right? I mean, we've defied conscience. We've defied his laws. The greatest sin is to reject Christ, really. I mean, to continue to do that and do that is a very dangerous ground. But just like the man in the Bible, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's critical to admit, I just, I need help. I need forgiveness. I need help outside myself. And number two, to recognize what God has done. He not only made you, but he's revealed himself in his son. And you know, to follow Christ, there's nothing more right than that in life. And to believe in Jesus, what he does actually, is he enlarges your heart to love others with, with his love. I mean, it doesn't make us actually narrow. He actually, it's a narrow belief, but it's a belief that explodes our heart with courage, with love for others. Yeah. So recognize what he's done for. He died on the cross. He resurrected from the dead. And Jesus said, there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way, a narrow way that leads to eternal life. You be that find it. And he said, we must repent. Turn from our sin, turn to God, like take a U-turn in life and do it today. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. 